A cloud provider gives a developer low-cost compute infrastructure on demand. Cloud providers can be divided up into two categories, Layer 1 cloud providers and Layer 2 cloud providers. A Layer 1 cloud provider, such as Amazon Web Services, owns server hardware and sells compute infrastructure as a commodity. A Layer 2 cloud provider purchases compute infrastructure from a Layer 1 provider and builds a high-quality developer experience on top of that compute infrastructure. Heroku was the first Layer 2 cloud provider. Heroku's first business was to provide a high-quality developer experience and low-cost containerization infrastructure on top of Amazon's EC2 virtual machine infrastructure. Heroku has since added features for continuous integration, relational databases, caches, and queuing. Building a Layer 2 cloud provider is a very different challenge than building a Layer 1 cloud provider. A Layer 1 provider must focus on low-level problems such as hardware infrastructure and virtualization. This does not leave much time for focusing on developer experience. A Layer 1 cloud provider must be able to serve every type of potential software customer. But a Layer 2 provider can provide a streamlined experience. Mark Turner is an engineer at Heroku. He joins the show to discuss the architecture and engineering of a Layer 2 cloud provider. Heroku is built on top of Amazon Web Services, and the core compute infrastructure is built on top of a pool of EC2 machines that are continually scheduled with applications that users create on Heroku. This was a great discussion of the technical engineering challenges and the design of Heroku. Full disclosure, Heroku is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I want to mention that we are hiring a content writer and also an operations lead. Both of these roles are working part-time closely with me and Erica, and they're great positions if you're looking to learn more about software engineering or how our business runs. The content writing position is going to write about fairly technical software engineering subjects, and the operations lead will help us lead our business in a more well-organized fashion and will help us spot opportunities that we can improve the efficiency of software engineering daily. If you're interested in either of these positions, the content writer or the operations lead, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Don't be shy. If you think you'd be a reasonable fit, please reach out. Also, this episode will air on December 4th, and that means that this same day we're going to be at AWS reInvent and for the rest of the week, and we're planning a reInvent meetup on December 4th. If you are interested in attending that meetup, just go to the link in the show notes and click on it to RSVP. I'd love to see you there, and let's get on with this episode. If you are a SaaS or software vendor looking to modernize your application distribution to gain more enterprise adoption, check out Replicated.com. Replicated provides tools to deliver your Kubernetes-based application to enterprise customers as a modern, on-prem, private instance. That means your customers will be able to install and update your application just about anywhere, bare metal servers, in a cloud VPC, GovCloud, in their own Kubernetes cluster, vSphere. 
This is a secure way that your customers can use your application without ever having to send data outside of their control. Instead of your customers sending their data to you, you send your application to your customer. Now, this might sound difficult, and maybe you're not used to it because you're a SaaS vendor, you're a software vendor. But Replicated promises that recent advancements from tools like Kubernetes make it far easier than before, and the Replicated tools can help vendors operationalize and scale this process. The Replicated tools are already trusted by noteworthy customers like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others, and as a result, over 45 of the Fortune 100 already have an application deployed via Replicated in their infrastructure. That's a strong sign of adoption. Go to replicated.com for a 30-day trial of the full Replicated platform. You can also listen to an interview with Grant Miller, the CEO of Replicated, that we did a while ago. Thank you to Replicated for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you can check it out for yourself at replicated.com and get a free 30-day trial. Mark Turner, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You work at Heroku, and Heroku is a cloud provider. Cloud providers are quite a large space, and if we think about the design of a cloud provider, there are different trade-offs that different cloud providers make. And these come in terms of costs, in terms of developer experience, in terms of the operations that the cloud provider expects from the average developer. Describe the different trade-off spectrums that cloud providers can make in designing a developer experience. Man, that's a big question. Mostly because Heroku, through our entire lifetime, has almost always focused on getting web apps onto the internet. And the trade-offs that we and other cloud providers might decide to to make in service uh, or in service of the sort of like end goal we're going for could be quite dramatic. And so when I look at the or quite dramatically different. And so for me, when I look at I have to answer the question from like a Heroku perspective, honestly, because that guiding principle of that sort of web app host is one that helps us clarify the mission a lot. When we describe the trade-offs that we make as cloud providers, I think it's solely, not solely, but the biggest factor that feeds into that is, is what s- service that that service, that service provider is offering. And so at Heroku, again, like I was saying, we focus on getting a web app on the internet and our bread and butter has been Ruby apps for a long time, but we really support a ton of languages and, but it's really squarely that web app focus. And what does that mean for us? That means that we're like focused on TLS and exposure of web technologies. And there's like legacy migration stuff we don't have to touch often. There's been spectrums of the computing world that we haven't had to support as well. You know, like windows, for example, because our main customer base has classically been using, you know, POSIX-based, Linux, macOS-based systems. And so for us, our main guiding principle has been, you know, 
servicing that web app that that really fits in that sort of 12 factor model and i don't mean to bring up 12 factor you know quite so quickly but for us it really does squarely define what describes an application suitable for heroku and i think that when you talk about shipping software to the internet 12 factor as a description of what that software should do and should be has worked well when we think about what offerings heroku should offer our customers. Shortly after Heroku came to market and it became pretty popular, there was a a variety of attempts at kind of the, an open source Heroku experience. And I think the software community as a whole did iterate towards that vision and, and kind of got there with Kubernetes, but Kubernetes, even Kubernetes is something that's pretty different than a Heroku-like experience. How do you see the cloud provider evolution? When you think back over the last 10 years, Heroku, I think, was started, it was 10 years, was it 10 years ago? I think it was something like that. It's been over 10 years now, but yeah. How has the cloud provider space evolved over the last decade? Man, that's huge. Back when we started, all that existed was EC2 Classic. And, you know, a few disparate companies out there trying to scale up their dynamic bare metal hosting services out there, making it possible for companies like us to to put stuff on the internet. And Heroku has always been on the cloud and we've always been an EC2 customer. And for us, the way that the cloud has changed is really mostly that the scale of the infrastructure providers has increased dramatically and they keep creeping up the stack as far as what services they offer that we are able to leverage and, and, and take advantage of to power the, the paths we build. And I think that's generally, generally ubiquitous for everybody approaching cloud stuff today. Everything that companies like AWS offer as a, you know, the, the wide, you know, disparate services that they provide means that you really kind of get a giant kit of, 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 of solutions to problems that you don't even know you have sometimes. And when we started approaching shipping software into the cloud, that really didn't exist. That kind of selection of available off the shelf, and I'm using quotation marks here, but that available choice of tools that you didn't have to build yourself wasn't there. And so for Heroku, we ended up building a lot of the sort of cloud management systems that you don't have to do a lot of today. Things that we kind of take advantage of that are ubiquitous, things like Ansible and Chef, things like Terraform. There's probably a chance that Heroku, at one point in our history, wrote a bespoke or heavily contributed to or was a heavy user of some open source library or package that that did equivalent features of those things. And so over time, the biggest thing that's happened for us in relation to cloud providers and especially in the industry, I think, is that it's just become easier and easier and easier and easier to use cloud providers. And that's that story is the same story for Heroku as it is for anyone today. And I find kind of interesting is in the layer two cloud provider space, which is it's pretty small. It kind of surprises me how few layer two providers there are. I mean, there have been a few more over the years, but you know, Heroku came out, and then there were really not a whole lot of other Layer 2 cloud providers that reached prominence for a while, which is kind of interesting. Do you have any beliefs around why that is? Why have there been so few Layer 2 cloud providers? 
so I think the reason for that, the reason for the the lack of a, a sort of diaspora of, of of these providers out there is that it's a really hard business to operate, both from an operations perspective and from a cost perspective and from a, a margin generation perspective. Living at the gap between the infrastructure providers and that kind of like opinionated experience that customers come to us for is surprisingly hard to make a really successful business out of financially. And Heroku has done really well doing that. And I think that that's been a core tenant to our success. So bit there is we sort of focused on the business side of it and have for a long time. And that the secondary part is the technology side. So part of Heroku having been around sort of the cloud, you know, in air quotes forever, is that we've had to generationally deal with a few growth changes in our product. From the very start, though, we've always been multi-tenant. And I think that's where stuff gets hard for people. That multi-tenancy line is super difficult for a lot of stuff to jump. And especially in open source communities, especially with the adoption of Kubernetes and the explosive growth of that, the sort of like isolated barriers, isolated boundaries of kind of that layer two behavior that Heroku and other providers have, have really thrived in is becoming easier and easier and easier to do. But I really do think that the operation of a multi-tenant layer two provider is really hard, really complex, and really difficult. And let's talk about that in more detail. So first of all, I think by multi-tenancy, you mean the fact that most of what you are building on top of are raw EC2 instances, which are virtual machines, I believe. Like those are virtual machines that are spun up on Amazon infrastructure, and you're breaking up those virtual machines into containers, specifically Heroku containers, which are called dynos. And then you have multiple different dynos operating on the same EC2 instance, those dinos may be from the same customer. They may be from different customers. One dino might be gigantic. It might be a resource hog. Another dino might be totally small. And then figuring out how to distribute these tenants in the right way so that they're not conflicting with each other. And then what do you do if a machine goes down? And it's, it's a huge bundle of problems. Exactly. Yep. And like you hit the nail on the head there with sort of capacity and resource allocation. That's that's a huge one. You know, we might have customers that have workloads where each single process uses 14 gigs of memory. At the same time, they might have something where each process uses two megabytes and they want each of those things to schedule and boot up instantaneously. And that's the kind of, you know, orchestration layer problems we deal with that makes it hard. And then it's the isolation and security boundaries between all of that stuff that also makes it hard and auditing and, and patching and maintaining those boundaries is the hard part. And then you factor in sort of layering on those workflows that power that Heroku experience that, that those containers encapsulate down at the bottom of it. It all sort of adds up into, I think, just a hard system to build. And the, you've been at the company for f more than five years. So you have seen the rise of containerization becoming popular in, in terms of Docker. Obviously, containers were widely used uh, long before that. But you saw the rise of Amazon ECS 
for example, and the rise of, of Mesos, Apache Mesos, and then eventually Kubernetes. How did Heroku and the infrastructure strategy within Heroku respond to those major infrastructure changes across the industry? And by the way, I mean I mean that in terms of did you refactor the infrastructure at all to take advantage of those things? I would be fibbing to you if I said that things like that didn't factor into structural changes that have happened. But I can tell you that for things like ECS and Mesos, that's kind of where the influence sort of ends for us a lot of times is it's an inspirational thing, not often something that we necessarily adopt directly and use. But that's not true all the time. So there have been many cases over my years here where we have completely replaced some bespoke custom thing with something from the provider, for sure. For example, on our private spaces product, one of the design intentions we went into when we built that was how much more AWS could we use to power the sort of isolated experience that we're trying to build. And we ended up reaching into some AWS systems like SWF, Kinesis, Dynamo, a bunch of stuff to try to you know, rethink what the Heroku experience might be if we were to assemble it, not just with AWS components, but with, you know, a modern take of a few years ago, but a modern take of like, what could we do today if we did it fresh? But that was like a kind of like a, not a grand rewrite, but a big stab, stab at an intentional sort of single tenancy version of our product. But it was a snapshot of the kind of reason approach we've gone to again and again and again. Examples being Dynamo. Dynamo is a thing Heroku adopted rather early on in its life cycle because it's solved huge problems for us. S3 has always been around for us as well, and it would be a disservice to not mention S3. It's probably the most reliable thing Amazon's ever built, and it's wonderful. So we use S3 for everything. But yeah, man, every time if it fits and works, we will, you know, we often rather pay for something from AWS than keep something bespoke and custom or even open source internally up and running. And did Kubernetes and the grassroots volume of people who have joined in the Kubernetes community, has that affected your infrastructure strategy? Oh, for sure. I think that the interesting thing about Kubernetes that's, that is a concrete problem that Heroku has is that, you know, back to you know, the mention that you know, we've been in the cloud forever, we've, we've all dealt with the same infrastructure abstraction problems that anyone out there is dealing with. The same kind of orchestration of underlying infrastructure resources that powers the experience we're trying to build, like Kubernetes squarely solves. And for years, we've been playing with and, and trying to leverage Kubernetes as much as we can and where it makes sense, for sure. And I think that especially when you look at some of the behind the scenes infrastructure orchestration work that Heroku does, that again, Kubernetes does offer some interesting off-the-shelf solutions for stuff that, that we've written and we have leveraged that for sure. It does influence us because part of the sort of explosion of people working on infrastructure orchestration style things, especially as they're trying to power PaaS-like application experiences within the Kubernetes ecosystem. It means that, and especially as a company like Heroku, we get to potentially leverage some of that 
stuff to level up and power our platform better or integrate in more interesting ways. So things like the OSB API are really interesting things where Heroku has a direct lineage and sort of where some of those ideas came from. And it's really interesting for, say, us to offer some of our data services via that way sometime in the future, maybe. But there's just really potential stuff where the Kubernetes ecosystem exploding has made some of our lives easier. And, and we definitely leverage it when we can. So I, I had a conversation with somebody at Heroku, I think it was a couple years ago, and it was sort of around whether or not it would make sense for Heroku to have a Kubernetes offering. And you obviously don't have to discuss that, but I, I imagine it is it is an open question or an interesting question because we're in this phase right now where a lot of companies are deploying their own Kubernetes clusters for reasons that, I don't know, I think they may regret in the future. I mean, it could be totally wrong, but I feel like there is a bit of a, like... Like jumping on the bandwagon? Jumping on the bandwagon, like, do you, does this really solve a problem that you have for a lot? Of, like, I know there's like plenty of companies where it does make sense to operate your own Kubernetes clusters. Like... Uber is probably at a, such a scale where they want to be, and you know their economics makes sense in, in terms of, of running their own Kubernetes clusters. Heroku, obviously, it makes sense to run your own Kubernetes clusters in in certain contexts, or maybe you would want to go on Amazon, you know, manage Kubernetes. Maybe that would make sense for you. But you know, if you're like I don't know, like a small insurance company, like probably you should not be managing your own Kubernetes cluster, and therefore it opens the door to like. You know, do you want to even be offering a Kubernetes cluster product, or do you want to just offer the containers and manage the Kubernetes under the hood? I don't necessarily think that I even think of it as a dichotomy that way. I think that when you look at Heroku, and this is just my own two cents here, we've always kind of sold you an experience on top of, of whatever the underlying containerization tech is. Now, Heroku today uses two different container stacks. So whether you're using the private space side of things or our common runtime side, uh, which is the classic Heroku product everyone's familiar with, um, the Heroku side, we use LXC and we have for the longest time. On the private space side, we use RunC and that whole open container ecosystem. And the interesting thing that we are able to do that because of is that we have our own little like image format, the slugs thing that you might be familiar with if you've talked to Heroku. Slugs, or if you've worked with Heroku before, slugs are very familiar, very similar to Docker layers. They're just a file system abstraction or a collection of, of, of tarzip files that represent your application's specific layers on top of a uh, base image that we provide to the systems. That's what your slug is, just the delta between your app and our, our base image. And it's easy for us to shim that kind of slug into whatever sort of like underlying container runtime it is. So for us, it's totally reasonable and kind of not not easy in like the easy work sense, but easy in the conceptualization sense to look at the problem and say, could Heroku orchestrate containers running inside Kube somewhere and power its sort of like experience, the Heroku experience? And I think that that's 100% true. And I think that's why a lot of companies are out there today trying to sort of become or build the Heroku on top of Kubernetes or be that sort of like app workflow provider on top of Kubernetes. 
And I think that, again, similar to how the business is hard to operate, it's kind of like it's the sustained operations and service of that stuff that's hard too. And so for me, it's like, I always think there's probably space for Heroku to maybe orchestrate stuff in Kubernetes, or maybe it's always orchestrating stuff in EC2. But I also think there's always going to be customers who reach for Kubernetes and want that experience. It's just really hard for me to say where Heroku fits into that tail long-term. And I can't talk about like maybe what we would do or, or are doing, out loud, but I, I, you know, like we, we do look at Kubernetes and it, you know, it's easy for you to imagine us wanting to say, maybe consider orchestrating stuff there, but that's like, that's also at the same time, maybe something we don't want to do. Maybe we're okay living in that sweet spot of that 12 factor web app. So yeah, I, I just think it's, it's an interesting future we're in. And that's exactly the point. See, like I have used Heroku for years for, from personal college projects to, like a company that I built on Heroku, or to, well, I mean, arguably two companies I built on Heroku, neither of which were were like very successful, but you know, just like I was comfortable with it, and like if I mean, this gets to kind of the the selectivity question. Like, there's a, a book about about Apple that came out recently called Creative Selection, and a, a lot of it is a, is just about the Apple creative process, and I think a lot of what has given Heroku some long-term value is it has made that selection process, which which like the layer one cloud providers can't really do that. They can't say no to some new infrastructure trend. They can't, you just can't say no because then you're just like, you're not the fully fledged buffet of services. You have to say yes to everything basically. And that's why, that's how you end up with this gigantic catalog of services that are kind of hard to navigate through, hard to standardize the integrations for, on the other hand, with Heroku, you just you have been very selective with just like things that have been proven to be desired by the developer community. But it's a it's a very interesting product design challenge because you you kind of want to wait for the market to validate a product sector like continuous integration or something, but you also don't want to wait too long. Exactly, and I, I think that that's also complicated by, especially when you deal with market competitiveness too, right? Like you mentioned layer two providers, but also layer one providers creeping up that stack, getting better and better and better. And it, like where we expend our energy in sort of leveling up the platform's capabilities is really important. And we pay a lot of attention to how we spend that energy. And it's really important for us to make calls that are good for us because there's no way that Heroku is going to directly compete with AWS or Azure or GCP. That's, that's just not the game we play in. We, we're just not that game. But it's, it's a struggle, right? Because we do have big enterprise product offerings and we do have you know large customers that have demands for us. And part of that private spaces product offering that we have now was because of the loud demand that customers had for an isolated boundary from the rest of the sort of like multi-tenancy behaviors that they were experiencing, not just on the Heroku platform, but just around stuff they were dealing with in general, but also because they like the, the sort of like network boundary that comes with it. And that was an interesting thing that customers liked from us too. But yeah, it's like we were very selective about what we add to our shirts, what people really want. And even then it's, it's gotta make sense for us, you know? It's gotta make sense for the product. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, 
it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's v-e-t-t-e-r-y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. You've mentioned the Private Spaces product a couple times, and I, I'd like to drill into that as a case study in how you build products, and as well as a just, a I think, a deeply difficult engineering problem. I mean, you're not an infeasible engineering problem, but just one that has plenty of complexities. So the Private Spaces is an isolated runtime model in contrast to the multi-tenancy situation that can be exposed to like a noisy neighbor issue. How does the private spaces deployment model differ from deploying a multi-tenant kind of in the fully exposed, I can be on your EC2 instance with somebody else model of deploying a dyno? Are you asking from the customers, like how you might as a customer experience it, or are you asking from how we implemented it? More from the implementation point of view. Sure. I'm going to talk about the multi-tenant side because it helps explain the delta between the two really well. Yeah. Yeah, sure. On the multi-tenant side, it's exactly like you imagine. We have pools of AWS instances sitting out there and we have this app concept at Heroku and an app contains a collection of process types. Internally, we call those formations and each formation has a given scale, you know, zero to whatever you like. And so you can roughly imagine that when you create an app that there's this record of that app that exists in the system that knows that this app's a thing. And then when you push code to Heroku and you give us a proc file or instruct us via the API or some other mechanism that a formation needs to exist within this app, the way that that is treated on the multi-tenant side of our pro- of, of Heroku is we start the sort of like container orchestration process. So right then we're going to pick a random or some other scheduling algorithm runtime node to schedule that container on. We're going to execute that decision to put the container on there. Once we got signal that it's picked up, we're going to start the preparation of routing rules to that given container for whatever domain names are set up for that application. You could, then eventually that's going to converge into a good state and that dyno or container will start servicing requests for that given domain set. We separate the routing layer 
from the execution layer, that container layer. The orchestration layer that I mentioned deals with two things, the scheduling of that container onto a node, and then also the providing of information to the routing layer that that node is routable. Uh, the routing layer has its own you know, behavior, the way it deals and handles with that state change. But on the orchestration layer, that's kind of the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. On the private space side, because of the isolated nature of this, there's a bit more familiarity and ability and, and willingness for us to tightly control the, the instance counts and things that might exist inside that private space. So you can imagine that flow being roughly the same, one in which that formation creation or scale request comes in. But the orchestration components that sit inside that boundary are a lot more familiar with how to interact with the underlying infrastructure directly instead of depending on outside systems to provide those scaling behaviors. So the big difference is that you could imagine that the flows that we use to deal with interacting with uh, a container fleet change in the private space side, it has instance capacity or other sort of resource capacity concerns within that logic flow that don't exist on our multi-tenant side, just due to the scale in which the two separate, the two things operate. On the multi-tenant side, there's many thousands of things and the systems that scale or react to, to fleet capacity requests and changes are big systems unto themselves. And so just the way that we approach capacity management and fleet management in response to customer initiating scaling is, is the big difference between the two. Does that make sense? Yeah. So can you go into a scale up example? So like, let's say I'm uh Let's say I'm 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 Uber and and I'm you know deploying my whatever my my marketplace uh, application to the public space versus the private space. How is the scale up story going to be different in those two environments? Sure. And so in the Heroku, the multi-tenant model, scale up. So the basically the going from zero to one or number to some end number is going to result in the scheduling of execution runs, assuming there's capacity. So the orchestration layer is going to say, hey, system, do you have enough memory out there to for me to shove 64 gigs of work at you, whatever that might be. And if the, if the system believes it can do it, it will attempt to do that schedule and then come back success or fail and then do the router manipulation bit I said before. On the private space side, that's not the case. On the private space side, we would know based on the scale, whether we have the capacity, sorry, that scale request that the customer is making, whether we have the capacity to service the request or not. So if the customer comes in and says, hey, I want to scale this thing up to from zero to 64 processes, then we're going to be immediately in this process of scaling or creating 64 compute resources on the EC2 side or the AWS side, or reusing 62 resources that were there before. Um, but there's very quickly that immediate decision. Do I need additional resources in the cloud provider to service this thing? And if so, start that process. That exact decision flow doesn't exist on the on the common space side. There's just this like emit of, of like, I there's an insufficient capacity problem here. I can't schedule this resource. And there's going to be an out of band system that responds to the signals and then starts capacity handling. On the private space side, again, that that's that scale up flow is going to immediately start provisioning AWS resources or again reusing stuff that might be there if it's there, 
but more often than not, it's going to be a pr- provisioning of AWS resources. So the biggest difference between the, the, the common runtime experience and the private space experience for those customers would be they're going to notice that provision time every time. They're not going to notice it on the common space side because we can have huge you know, Slack pool capacities and things like that. But you could imagine that we don't, for any given space, have 64 sitting idle instances ready to go for that given customer, uh, especially due to the isolation boundary that they run in. So in the private space model today, then it would be a, a pretty slow boot there. Interesting. So if I understand correctly, I remember from a previous show with Heroku that I did, Heroku does have this fascinating engineering problem of you have to keep a pool of instances that you can schedule new containers onto. And, you know, so I, I don't know if those are like reserved instances or if they're uh, like spot instances, or maybe you just have an entire layer that's responsible for grabbing these instances and basically saying, hey, uh, Heroku wants those, uh, and then we're going to do something with them, and then you can take them, them out of the pool. But in any case, you're saying that, that, you know, if for no other reason than the networking boundaries, you can't do that for the private spaces because with the private spaces, you, you need a specific type of instance. You need an instance that is network partitioned in a way that it is friendly with existing private space instances for that particular customer. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about that. Don't just isolate at the VPC layer. Like the present, this is present state model for private spaces are such that they're split at the AWS account layer. So right now, each private space is kind of an isolated AWS account. And that just adds a whole nother layer of resource sharing uh, hurdle that is hard to, to deal with. Wow. Tell me more about the networking requirements for building private spaces. Sure. Part of the design intent with private spaces where we wanted to offer a sort of not sort of a actual HIPAA PCI and SOX compliant environment for customer workloads. And so we squarely targeted PCI DSS as the initial compliance regime we wanted to comply with in that private space initial architecture. And what comes with that is, is modeling what is or isn't cardholder data. Um, And so we have a lot of energy that goes into and systems in there that completely isolates uh, the customer's software and data from our software and data because of not wanting to have our systems be able to penetrate or have exposure to that cardholder data environment that the customer is really kind of responsible for. And so that really is just what comes down to it is just really firm boundary, super firm boundary between the customer's data and the importance of it versus our data. And it's not importance in comparison to the customer's data. And what that means topologically and networking wise is you can imagine that there's more subnets in our life, more secure, more security groups between those subnets. There's huge isolation boundaries between the resources that sit in these spots that are intentionally there to block off communication, all in hopes of, 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 of making it hard to, to communicate. And that's all coming down to both topology and just other structural differences between the two sides of the platform. What was the hardest engineering problem that you had to solve while you're building private spaces? People. <laughs> Let's see here. Hardest engineering problem. You can go deeper on people. People's interesting. <laughs> People's very interesting. I think that Heroku 
did somewhat of a classic engineering mistake with the private spaces product in which we assembled a group of, of folks together. We kind of like picked and choose good engineers from around the org and blessed them with the, the decision to go build this new platform product, this new version of Heroku. And that instilled a lot of negative sentiment with the people that were left behind. And I'm using air quotes there, you know, with the legacy stuff. And that was never really the intent behind what that product initiative was. And it never really manifested itself. But a lot of the way that we presented and talked about that project internally really gave that sentiment and feeling to people that they were being left behind in this legacy Heroku. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. And so I really think the biggest challenge, again, I know this isn't the engineering challenge, but the biggest challenge in my time with Dogwood was overcoming that perception that that product was there to replace everything else everyone else was working on. And that was really hard for us because that was never the goal. It was just, again, a single isolated you know, version of that Cedar product, that common space product that people were familiar with. Wow. So there was a misconception that this was a total, like, this is the, the second version of, this is the next version of Heroku, but this is a, just as an adjunct product. This is like a totally exactly. different product. Yep. And so you can imagine the sentiment that it caused internally. And that was a really rough time. Um, especially, you know, like it's not so much, you don't, you don't dwell on it, but when you just reflect back on those moments, there was just a lot of rough interpersonal stuff that occurred because of the perceived boundaries that that created. I mean, that kind of stuff literally happens at every company and miscommunications just happen everywhere. I mean, Heroku is like a partly remote company, right? So like solving these problems with a partially remote engineering team is that's even more novel. Like we don't we don't really have good patterns for disseminating information in a remote organization yet, I don't think. Yeah, we've been 80% remote or higher the entire time I've been at Heroku. And my entire experience as an engineer here has been working with, you know, predominantly remote engineers. And so, you know, it's hard to communicate sometimes. Pros and cons of, of a remote engineering team? How are you feeling about it? I have spent the last decade only doing remote jobs like this. And for me, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life because, and I'm a fierce defender of spending time with my children. I have two young kids and every day they get off uh, school at 3 PM and I will just peace out of whatever I'm doing and just go hang out with my children every day. And I have that benefit and that luxury because of the way Heroku and Salesforce operates the remote workforce, man. So like, it's really great for me to have that respected boundary in my own personal life that I get because I'm a remote employee and getting back to just the work side of things. I also appreciate working with a remote crew that takes an intentional effort into making that team effective. And I just kind of really like tearing into the sort of problems that teams experience with that remote angle and seeing how we could do it better. And in the five years I've been here, there's been a lot of these sort of remote, ten, you know, remote-ish, remote-related problems we've dealt with, and they've all been fun to deal with. It's It's been really fun. So I don't know. It's just been a fun way to live, and I really appreciate the personal benefits that I get in my own personal life from being a distributed employee. Isn't it cool watching this development spread across the working world, like the, the ability to work remote and 
the increased adoption. This is a totally new way of doing work. Yes, some people have been doing it for for 10 years. You know, you, it sounds like you're an early adopter and you have some extra savvy in it, but it's cool seeing seeing it propagate. Do you have what are some words of wisdom? What are some learnings reducing those kinds of communication gaps and and issues that that are just inseparable from the gratuitous benefits of working remotely? I think I, I mentioned this word a moment ago, but I think that I have to parrot myself again and say that there's a lot that makes really effective remote teams work that is in parallel or similar to sort of like a bunch of other intentional relationship approach stuff. And what I mean by that is that if you are able to collectively agree on how you guys work together, how that group works together, it makes work easier. So what I mean by that is if you guys commit to, you know, having a stand up on a Monday and a Friday and you just make that happen. And then you also commit to having a conversation if it's not working anymore and you always make sure that it's a safe space to have those conversations where you have the critical eye on those processes that you're doing, then you never put people into an uncomfortable position where they feel like they can't make a change to those processes that makes their life better. And so I guess for me, it's, it's approaching the kind of the way you work with a bit of flexibility and understanding that the other person at the other end of line has just as much of a complex life as you do and as much random shenanigans coming into their life because of that remote nature, that just being a bit flexible is useful. And the other thing that I think comes with, especially as you grow your career with an organization and rise up through the ranks, I think it's easy to, it's especially poignant lately, but it's easier to fall into that manager schedule that is really aligned to some business hours in a specific time zone. And if you're not super, super careful about defending your working hours, you'll lose them. People will start injecting themselves into times of the day that you don't want. And I think it takes really important defensive time management skills to be protective of those moments that you want for yourself because you need them to survive as a remote employee. All right. Coming back, those are great words of wisdom, but coming back to the engineering side of things, actually, one thing I'm curious about is the the product development side of the house because you know we we talked a little bit about the just the kind of uniqueness of being in a position of a layer two cloud provider that does this process of creative selection where you're you're throwing away a lot of product ideas that you could do or not throwing them away just just saying we have to say no to these things because the things that we do we're gonna have to do really really well and we want to we want to keep the surface area of the product low enough that it remains approachable. Tell me about the product development process from from what you've seen at Heroku. Sure. So we've always had a product organization within Heroku with, with product managers and product owners. And for the most part, they are the sort of owner that own the shape or feel of the way a part of the platform is or feels or functions. So you could imagine Heroku has this add-ons marketplace where you can get a database or a static IP address or some other kind of you know resource attached to your app. We have a product manager who, who owns the way that that whole ecosystem feels. And that person 
is there to sort of like be the decider about what we do and what we change in regards to those features. But the idea genesis where, where stuff comes in and what we might do really comes from all over. But it is a combination of customer feedback, internal engineer suggestions, random feedback through Slack or email or whatever. And then those end up into the product manager's mind or roadmap in some way or, or list of, of features that they might want to do. And then they work with engineering leadership like myself within the various parts of the org to figure out how and if we want to do some of those things. And that's how most features end up flowing through Heroku is that exact same kind of flow. Someone decides we want to do something. They propose it to a product person. Usually maybe they talk to their peers first or something like that. Maybe it's a customer doing that exact same thing. And that customer asks their salesperson or that customer you know, asks support or that customer within a support case asks an engineer directly or, or an engineer gets asked by their friend who runs on Heroku. Um, but all of that, we're trying to flow through our product management org. And over my time at Heroku, it, it's interesting that I've seen that get better and better and better. So I would say that today, more so than ever in my time, we're very good at making sure that kind of like product shape and direction oriented stuff flows through the relevant product owner's mind or you know, area. But we still expect and have tons of participation in the iteration and creation of new features or new ideas or new paths we could go down for the product from the individual folks down on the you know ground working on it. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a scalable monitoring and analytics platform that unifies metrics, logs, traces, and more. Use Datadog's advanced features to monitor and manage SLO performance in real time. Visualize all your SLOs in one place. Easily search, filter, and sort SLOs and share key information with detailed, intuitive dashboards. Plus, Datadog automatically calculates and displays your error budget so that you can see your progress at a glance. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog and sign up for a free 14-day trial, and you will also get a complimentary t-shirt from Datadog. Just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog, sign up, and get that free t-shirt. I'd like to get your perspective on the broader space of the cloud cloud technologies today. So one area I'm I'm kind of interested in is is the history of these open source infrastructure platforms. So the things that were around before Kubernetes. You have OpenStack, you have Cloud Foundry. I'm wondering what is different about Kubernetes, if there is something different, if there's something different about the community or the way that the API surface developed or just the timing. I assume you, you have, you've seen uh, some of those previous infrastructure platforms, and I, I'd just love to get your, your perspective on uh, from a historical point of view. Yeah, this is just my own personal feeling about this. And I think that that's not any way to addendum what I'm saying. It's just, I feel like I say a lot about my feelings that way. But I think Kubernetes is really, a, it's a combination of a couple of different things, but I think it's timeliness. And also that 
people needed a way to get Docker containers onto the internet that worked all over the place. And infrastructure providers like GCP specifically really saw the leveraged power that there was in making sure that there was a sort of ubiquitous interface for describing what that infrastructure might be. And so I think that in combination of timing, both, you know, in just the way the Heroku, not Heroku, but the Kubernetes product just ended up in computing, but in concert with cloud providers wanting to find a way to compete with each other better meant that Kube provided a really good interface for us. And that comes from the perspective that it's exactly that for us at Heroku. Kubernetes looks an awful lot like the perfect way to abstract away that sort of infrastructure bootstrapping problem we have and some of the sort of baseline infrastructure management problems we have. And so for me, when I look at Kubernetes, I see the the layer one providers betting that if they get more companies targeting Kube, that the transition story between your cloud and my cloud is simpler, but we're going to keep you sticky based on the value add stuff like the rest of the tool chain AWS provides or the rest of the tool chain Azure provides or GCP or whoever it is. So I believe, again, that it's squarely in the sort of like customer growth and, and, and you know attraction perspective for tier one or layer one providers to have a pretty good kube offering. And that's where I don't think it necessarily makes so much sense for Heroku. Again, I think for, if you look at it from a way to leverage <laughs> right. getting our stuff into a cloud, it makes sense, but maybe not for Heroku. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, Heroku, please do not make me interface right? with Kubernetes. <laughs> like, just keep me from having to do that, please. But it was, you know, it was such a brilliant jujitsu move by Google to get into the cloud space via releasing Kubernetes. Like, I just, it's the kind of thing that just makes me feel very happy. And you talked about Cloud Foundry and OpenStack before, and they all had those same chef, you know, like, like there were no good deployment stories for things. There were no good ways of doing that. You know, companies, you know, there was big companies out there that, that sold you, you know, complicated chef systems for managing your OpenStack install. And those are never good. But nowadays you can get a managed kube cluster from Google and go a pretty long distance. And that was a story you just couldn't do a couple of years ago. I almost feel, I, I mean, I'm maybe not qualified to say this, but I almost feel like it was necessary to go through those growing pains, through those different generations of first the the open stack where you where we kind of learned as an industry, okay, there was some politics, there were some political problems between the companies. Okay, we're going to need a better community. And then Cloud Foundry, you know, was great, but it was kind of like very much territory that was entirely in the purview of one or just a few companies. And then, you know, the chef and, and puppet and Ansible and all that whole generation was like, this stuff is too imperative. Like we're scripting everything and it's like in a bunch of different scripts and it's too, like the, it doesn't fit the architecture that we need. And then finally, with all these learnings, we could take us, and then Docker, you know, Docker was just timely. Finally, with all these learnings, you know, we could say, okay, let's, let's put this into a single platform and it's Kubernetes. I think they did a couple of things right from the beginning, you know, like they abstracted away things like load balancers as an, a generic right. interface from the very start. <laughs> right. And so it was really easy as an infrastructure provider to look at that and say, oh man, I could slot behind my Acme Cloud LB and service this, you know, YAML request from this customer. So again, it's just a it's a really interesting, really interesting computing thing. Do you have a sense of how advanced or production ready the operator based 
deployments of like these database solutions or like Kafka. Have you worked with operators much? Uh, yeah, we've definitely like you. <laughs> we poke at competitors. <laughs> so part of the operator approach for provisioning resources that appeals to us for, for in one angle that we like is again that isolation boundary one. You could imagine that an operator approach to managing data resources within a cluster boundary is like amazingly the exact kind of thing we would want. But the one one of the interesting wrenches for Heroku is that oftentimes we want to make something ephemeral. And for myself, that almost sometimes includes that cluster. And, and oftentimes I want those data resources to live well outside of the life cycle of that individual kube cluster. And that's where things like relying on operators for for databases just kind of like rubs me personally the wrong way. I just think that like some kind of like bootstrapping cluster lifecycle stuff around that doesn't necessarily align with how kind of ephemeral I think you should treat Kubernetes sometimes. That's profound. And it's actually a really good point because people are starting to talk about, oh, your Kubernetes cluster, it's uh, it's cattle, exactly. not pets. And it's like, well, uh, you know, if you're starting to put an operator in there, then I don't know. I mean, do you, you, you know, maybe you have some fault tolerant, maybe you have a Kubernetes cluster that's me. You could do the Kubernetes federation thing. Like one of your Kubernetes clusters is like the super sensitive, always up Kubernetes cluster. And the other ones are the, are the cattle. Like, would that work? For sure. Perhaps. And I also think that this will get better and better and better. Also, I just want to be clear. I don't think that any of the, and this is the whole true story with Kubernetes from the start is that like every time these kind of operational sort of entire application lifecycle problem kind of becomes a problem, a solution comes out there. And, and so even things like the operator, let's just imagine a popular operator that orchestrates AWS databases on your behalf. There's ways for you to make those resources live beyond that cluster boundary just by the way you orchestrate the creation of those resources within the provider. So with judicious, careful creation of those resources, you can do it as well. And so in that case, I think that like the operators are fine. I just think you got to be careful. Like anything, you got to be careful. The concept of service mesh, is that appealing for you or for a company like Heroku? It's complicated because I think that there are use cases where service meshes make sense for some workloads but not necessarily for like our own internal use. Almost always our customers want some kind of service mesh style behavior between their services and processes running on the platform. And so we're often in a situation where we're considering or reasoning about or working on ways in which we might offer service mesh style behaviors attached to Heroku's container system, but nothing's really stuck, especially when you take a look at the private space isolation uh, isolation boundary. Almost all the customers that want the service mesh are almost all also willing to pay for the private space and just get the isolation boundary and just do inter-process communication that way. And we offer like service targeting and stuff like that that really alleviates some of the other benefits you get from some off the shelf or just some service mesh concepts. And so I don't know, it's been tough for us to find a good fit within Heroku. That's just a Heroku hat. Uh, Speaking more broadly about Salesforce, there's been definite advantages of service mesh approaches to some services we might offer. Mm, mm. Okay. Just a few more questions to wrap up. 
you have any predictions that you haven't discussed yet about how the Kubernetes ecosystem will evolve? I personally think it's going to keep getting easier and easier and easier to run applications on Kubernetes in the same way as me as a Heroku, I mean applications. So as a developer, I, I have WordPress. I think it's going to be really simple to go from downloading WordPress on wordpress.com to getting a bespoke deployment on some kube somewhere rather simply. I get all kinds of signals from that all over the place that that kind of like... I certainly hope yeah. so. I'm spending way too yeah, much yeah, on my yeah. WordPress host. I'm spending <laughs> way, 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 way too much. I think everyone's aiming, not everyone's aiming for that, but I feel like once that deployment story to Kube is really, really solved simply, it's going to be interesting. Really interesting, I think. Yeah, WordPress and GitLab are like the best examples of like, can you do this in two seconds yet? Like, I'm st- yep. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. I think Kubernetes is so big. I also think that you're going to see, if you're attached to CNCF stuff, this isn't surprising, but I think you're going to see kind of an explosion or adoption of the cloud provider admin interface stuff, I think. I think part of oh, like the build OSB. Your own, build your own cloud provider stuff? Not build your own cloud provider, but the OSB admin API stuff. That's open is service of, broker. Exactly. So, so dealing with the administrative side of, of what the Kubernetes service catalog might interact with is kind of a poor story at the moment. Mm. And so I think part of leveling up, say, things like an operator provisioning services, but more specifically cluster local things, trying to provision stuff via OSB, I think that you're going to see more providers, say, integrate better with Kubernetes quickly mm. once some of the provider API stuff is better doing things like a credential rotation for a data store from a provider's perspective in an arbitrary Kubernetes cluster is a hard problem today. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a great answer. All right. Last question. How will the cloud provider market look different in five years? If the last five years are any hint about what the next five are going to be, I think <laughs> it's like I mentioned before. <laughs> who knows? Uh, who knows? I think the one for sure guarantee is you're going to continue to see AWS, GCP, and Azure chase check marks. <laughs> right. And I, I've mentioned this again a couple of times, but I think about it as creeping up the stack a bit. You know, you talk about layer one, layer two. Yeah. For me, each one of these layer one providers is slowly, slowly morphing into layer two. And like that puts them into, you know, depending how you look at it, it's yet just another feature addendum to the layer one portfolio of like services they offer. Yeah. But I think that you're going to start seeing more and more of that stack creep up the stack than that we haven't seen. And I especially think because you saw how quickly folks jumped on Lambda, like Lambda and serverless kind of like ignited the minds of all of our friends around the world. And again, I think that as those providers start coming up with actual solutions to problems that are useful (laughs) all the time, people are going to, you know, start using them all the time. Mark, it's been a pleasure talking. Really good conversation. Thanks for having me. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, 
Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. <laughs> 